3: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
1: I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: That, of course, being the voice of the late Lyndon Johnson, who dug a pretty deep hole in Vietnam, and that did not go well. Even though we had tremendous uh, military superiority over the Vietnamese, somehow... It didn't go well for us. And there's a lot of anger right now at the uh, ISIS group. But what can we do about it? Confucius said, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. One can understand the urge to retaliate for terrorist attacks. But the question we must ask is, does it work? As many have learned from the use of the death penalty, revenge is not the same as justice. It solves nothing, and most often, revenge exacerbates the problem. Very pleased to have with us in Keeping Democracy today our guest, Professor Andrew Bacevich. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Oh, I'm glad to be with
0: you. And uh, Professor Bacevich, in a recent article, asks, the question is whether further war... Can provide a remedy to the problem at hand. Professor Basevich is an historian specializing in international relations, security studies, American foreign policy, and American diplomatic and military history. He knows what he's talking about. He's a professor emeritus at Boston University. Basevich has been a persistent vocal critic of U.S. occupation of Iraq, calling the conflict a catastrophic failure. In March 2007, he described George W. Bush's endorsement of such preventive wars as, quote, immoral, illicit, and imprudent. Proved to be right. His son, also an army officer, uh, died fighting in the Iraq War in May 2007. His new book, America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History, is scheduled to appear in April 2016. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Everyone knows. Paris experienced a horrendous horrible attack on civilians on November 13. The problem might appear to be simple and a solution just as simple bomb the hell out of them. Well as H.L. Mencken said to every complex problem there's a simple solution and it's wrong. Before we get to ideas for possible solutions what is the problem at hand professor basevich?
2: Well it's that you're asking the f- the appropriate first-order question, and I don't pretend to be able to provide a definitive answer, but uh, it it seems to me that the real nexus of the issue is the, the, the difficulty of reconciling Islam with modernity. More broadly, reconciling Faith with modernity. We in the West had our own difficulties with that uh, problem. Uh, the, the resolution that we reached, whether or not it was a good resolution, was in essence to marginalize religion so that individuals may still choose to believe, choose to uh, to worship a god but as a practical matter we've uh, placed god on the margins of the way we govern our lives yes it was a difficult process uh, it's a process that may not satisfy all believers in the west today but it did enable us i think to move beyond religion as a uh, source of of, of, of of conflict well the sense is that that hasn't happened in islam And my further sense is that given the the way that muslims the way that that religiosity permeates politics in the in much of the islamic world that, that process of reconciliation is particularly difficult there
0: but isn't it true that most muslims have to a large extent, uh, uh, synthesized modernity with religiosity, and that the ISIS fighters are really <laughs> outliers when it comes to to people of the Muslim faith. And it also seems to me that if that it would be tremendously beneficial to recruiting for ISIS were the West to make war on all of Islam as some. People like uh, uh, Donald Trump and others uh, w- w- would have it, wouldn't that play right into their hands?
2: It, it certainly would. That said, I'm not sure I fully agree with you uh, about the, the the extent of the reconciliation. It certainly, I certainly would agree that. Uh, I mean, first of all, is Islam like Christianity, like Judaism, uh, is a a faith in which a range of views uh, exist. That said, there are very considerable populations in the Islamic world where resistance to modernity is uh, pretty evident. No, now, right. to your point, uh, the number of, of, of Muslims who in the course of who who, who who for whom that resistance uh, must take a violent form mm-hmm. with violence directed in many respects against their fellow Muslims but also in some cases against the West the number of people who who, who take up arms uh, is relatively small and, and and in in that regard your point that uh, anybody proposing to wage war on uh, Islam itself uh, is uh, wrong-headed and, and is proposing something that is deeply counterproductive.
0: Yeah, certainly we would need to, uh, as Confucius suggested, dig two graves. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive on this uh, half of the uh, show, we're talking with Professor Andrew Bezovich about uh, what can realistically be done uh, about ISIS. And as you put it, Professor Baševich, quote, in this conflict, the West generally appears to enjoy the advantage of a clear-cut military superiority. I'm old enough to remember the same status being the case with a little and militarily weak country called Vietnam. We had enormous military superiority And we lost that war. Today, the West, U.S., France, and England have unquestioned military superiority over the Islamic State. We could certainly flatten the entire region and make it radioactive for now until eternity. Is that enough to beat them? Is that at all realistic?
2: Well, obviously it's not. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear in the wars that we initiated in the wake of Mm 9-11 that the presence of U.S. forces in places like in Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan, even if those forces were, in all respects, better armed than their adversaries, that the presence itself uh, served as an incitement to uh, resistance. Uh, we, we attracted the jihadists. We inspired the jihadists. Uh, and uh, since we weren't willing to flatten the country and leave it a, a, a radioactive ruin, um, our putative military superiority was inadequate to the task. And, and my own sense is that for those who uh, advocate a bigger war against ISIS, and in particular those who say that uh, we need to send in U.S. and other allied ground forces, that it's quite likely that a similar uh, outcome would, would result. That is to say that even if uh, ISIS chooses to stand and fight, uh, and even if we can uh, reduce the, the threat posed by ISIS in a conventional sense, uh, we, we will have a mess on our hands. And uh, we won't be able to just sort of go in, clean, clean out the, uh, right. uh, the rattlesnakes, and then depart. We will find ourselves engaged in another uh, occupation, which inevitably will turn out to be counterproductive.
0: And it, it seems to me, anyway, perhaps you have, I mean, being a historian, may have a different uh, approach to this, but I'll put it out there anyway. It seems to me that we in the West have certain senses of history, certain understandings of history. And it appears that the Muslim world has a, a different sense of history and the impact on the realities to of today. For example, to us, the Crusades are long forgotten uh, occurring 1,000 years ago and World War One with the drawing of the Sykes-Picot line arbitrarily across the Middle East by the victors in the First World War uh, as, as the West's will was imposed on the Middle East. It, it, how do these seemingly arcane events affect that part of the world today? And I, I think that shows a very significant cultural difference. I mean, the idea of, of nations, of states, and as you describe, about religiosity in their world. So so how did these seemingly arcane events, the Crusades and the First World War, affect that part of the world today and what is being done to the West? Well, I
2: think for any people, uh, an interpretation of history informs their understanding of the, of the present, informs their understanding of
0: who they are,
2: what they stand for, or what they stand against. And I think it's quite common for peoples, therefore, to remember selectively. Uh, they, they they tend to remember uh, old grievances that may not have been uh, satisfactorily addressed, or they may choose to remember uh, uh, the moments of, of triumph and vindication, uh I think, with regard to the United States, uh, we we choose we choose in particular. I think our history, the 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 operative history, uh, consists of a particular version of the 20th century, uh, as the American century, as as the time when the United States achieved preeminence, and as the time when, in our recollection, uh, however. Uh, distorted this is in, in, in the time when we uh, became the the uh, exemplar of freedom and the and the liberator of, of others uh, I think that narrative centers on world War two yes uh, which even today uh, I think is the most important Already made a couple references to Vietnam. It's it's striking uh, how inconsequential uh, Vietnam has become as an element in that preferred historical Mm. narrative. Vietnam doesn't fit. Doesn't fit. So by and large, we choose not to remember Vietnam.
0: (laughs) But what about? With your knowledge of the area, Professor Bacevich, uh, things like the Crusades. And I saw many months ago there was a a video of uh, 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 victorious uh, ISIS uh, fighters uh, bulldozing through the Sykes-Pico line. Nobody's ever heard of that. I mean what what do, what role in their history are things like the Crusades? And well I'm I'm not competent
2: to, to comment on, on the Crusades, but with regard to Sykes Pico, as you suggested, uh, World War One became the occasion for Europeans, the Western Europeans, our allies, Great yeah. Britain and France, yeah. uh, to uh, dismember the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. which which up to that point Great Britain had as a matter of policy uh, supported Up up to 1915, 1916, uh, the Great Britain wished to see the Ottoman Empire uh, survive. When the Ottomans entered the war, the first war, Mm -hmm. on the side of the Germans, British policy flipped, now committed itself to terminating the Ottoman Empire, and then, by extension, to uh, carving up uh, what we today call the Middle East in order to serve the imperial purposes of uh, Great Britain and France now the United States had minimal right. uh, direct involvement in that uh, uh, but the Brits and the French uh, proceeded to do so and and in essence created uh, what we call the Middle East today and uh, a- as a consequence created uh, more than a few of the problems that are sources of great instability, with mm. with the with Iraq, really, as the preeminent example of that.
0: Yeah. Iraq was uh, created uh, in uh, 1919 to 21, thereabouts, and it, it, the lines that were drawn didn't—the people on the ground weren't consulted in drawing no. the lines, certainly. No, of course not. It was certainly imposed on them. Again, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, Andrew Bacevich is our guest, a historian specializing in international relations, American foreign policy. He knows his stuff on the issues of which we speak. Now, French President François Hollande has launched a massive uh, set of retaliatory strikes on ISIS territory. His, His anger, his rage is certainly understandable you write that quote aland demonstrates a crippling absence of imagination and that quote simply trying harder will not suffice as a basis of policy all right what what could he do what if he had a, a more of an imagination uh, and what else could Hollande uh, do given what happened to uh, his country on uh, november 13th
2: well i mean i i would argue that uh, uh France uh, and, and anybody else in the West that uh, is threatened by uh, violent Islamic radicals, and, and that threat does exist, that the first obligation of, of government should be to, to continuously harden our defenses uh, in, in order to try to prevent terrorists from uh, successfully attacking us, even while acknowledged, and this is an important point, even while acknowledging that no perfect defenses can exist. So as long as the phenomenon of this anti-Western jihadism, justified or not, as long as it exists, uh, there there will be times when terrorism will succeed. And the purpose of the state should be to minimize uh, those occasions, to limit the damage that can be done. That's, a, that's that seems to me is priority number one priority number two I think is uh, to recognizing that uh, Western intervention into uh, the Islamic world uh, with with very few exceptions tends to be counterproductive tends to make things worse yeah. that we need to and this is a huge diplomatic challenge we need to find ways get countries within that realm uh, to assume responsibility for trying to restore some of the stability that we ourselves so recklessly destroyed, particularly by invading Iraq in 2003. In other words, the, 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 the responsibility for restoring and then maintaining order should fall primarily on the shoulders of the countries that are there. Well, uh, Iran Saudi Arabia Turkey uh, Egypt they are better positioned uh, to deal with the basic problem than we are
0: and but but their motivation may be different from ours they have not been attacked as uh, you know France England and the US have been
2: that's not, that's, that's not true they have been attacked they, 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 they virtually all of them uh, are are threatened. I mean, the, the Russian airliner yeah. uh, that was blown up the other week took off from an Egyptian airport. Right. Uh, so they do have an interest. I mean, they, they, among themselves, they differ on a wide range of issues, yes. historical, religious, political, you name it. But my argument would be that those major regional powers all share one common interest, and that common interest is to maintain the existing state system to which ISIS poses a very direct and immediate threat.
0: So are they doing it?
2: No. They're, not, they're certainly not doing a very effective job of it. And, and one of the reasons they're not... They, they don't, they, we reduce their motivation to do it, we the West, mm-hmm. uh, because we the West continue to insist that its Western military power that can that can fix the problem, hmm. and, and I think the the present crisis with regard to ISIS uh, manifests this in spades. ISIS poses a big problem, but why should the regional powers uh, take on the very difficult task of setting aside their other differences in order to collaborate against ISIS when we've got the Americans bombing ISIS. We've got the British Prime Minister and the French President calling for war against ISIS. In other words, the the powers within the region don't have an incentive uh. to take on the responsibility of dealing with ISIS because Western powers uh, continue to insist that that the West itself will will handle the problem.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So <laughs> we can't just you know, sit back and, and, and do nothing, you you suggest that, uh, quote, rather than assuming an offensive posture, the West should revert to a defensive one. And that, another quote, rather than vainly attempting to police or control, this revised strategy should seek to contain. And Obama's taking a lot of heat for talking about containment. And before the Paris attacks, uh, he had actually suggested that we had contained ISIS. Please describe what your suggested policy might look like and how it might actually achieve its goals.
2: Well, I tried to describe it already. I mean, that uh, we we harden ourselves, we keep the bad guys from getting to us. Uh, We try to facilitate uh, others with an interest in stability and assuming responsibility for uh, for that uh, very difficult and challenging task and i think thirdly also uh, this is very much on the margins and effects would be uh would take a long time to uh, to to make any difference but i think we also need to do what we can do in the realm of cultural exchange and educational exchange to encourage those forces within the islamic world you already referred to them that 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 are committed uh to reconciling uh faith with modernity uh that that by connecting to those people. They tend to be young people. Mm. We can encourage them uh, in, their, in their very difficult and, and challenging task.
0: So that, that's certainly more challenging and more complex than just going in and, and bombing the heck out of uh, Well,
2: but, Well, I think that, that you're, you're making a good point there because the, the proponents of war and you know, the people who say, gosh, if we just sent in 50,000 U.S. troops to take care of ISIS, right. it would be well... They they are promise they, they they promise they hold out the promise of neat tidy easy solutions. Uh, <laughs> the problem is that the historical record shows that the results are not tidy solutions. That the actual results uh, are uh, first of all they're exceedingly costly yes. in terms of lives lost and and money wasted. Yeah. But actually, we end up making things worse. So, so, so what I have laid out is complicated. Uh, it, it, it doesn't promise a solution by tomorrow afternoon. Hmm. But it seems to me that it's at least worth considering, given that the proponents of war who, have always, who promise uh, solutions have repeatedly been shown to be utterly
0: off-base yeah <laughs> We have enough history of uh you know Western power intervention in the Middle East and Africa and Asia, South and Central America. It never works it's only made things worse and it seems like one of the possibilities that to which you allude is possibly working with say Iran. There's domestic politics that we have to deal with, too. The idea of, you know, saying to the American people, yeah, since Iran is the enemy of ISIS, that maybe we should work with them and work even with Russia. That That's a very... I, I wonder if, you know, having to appeal to domestic politics dooms <laughs> the whole situation when there are other more reasonable, more effective alternatives. What do you think?
2: Well, you know, the... The uh, the domestic discussion of foreign policy is so uh, deeply imbued with uh, moral language that it becomes difficult to propose things that may be that, that morally may make you want to hold your nose. But that, as a practical matter, can actually produce morally desirable uh, results. And I think uh, you mentioned Iran, and I think that's it's a that's a good question. Is there? It, 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 is, it is a fact uh, that Iran is not presently uh, a liberal democracy. That Iran does not respect the, uh, what our definition of human rights. That uh, uh, that Iranian uh, senior leaders. Uh, Continually engage in uh, rhetoric, yeah. uh, anti-American rhetoric, uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, that uh, we people rightly find offensive. But it's also it's also considerable evidence, uh, I believe, uh, that uh, Iran can be uh, brought back in from the cold.
4: Mm.
2: Been utterly isolated since the Iranian Revolution began. Uh, 35 years ago, and that Iran can become a a power that uses its influence to help restore uh, stability. That, that to put bluntly, Iran is actually a status quo power,
4: mm-hmm.
2: not a revolutionary power hell bent on mm. uh, overturning the existing order. And so, there is an argument to be made for trying to work with iran not because they are a friend not because they they believe we believe right. but because their interests in some very important respects coincide with our interests
0: and there are a heck of a lot of young people in iran which is a huge Bingo. huge huge country Bingo. thank you so much if people are interested in following uh, your writing uh, to what website can you point them i don't i don't have a website oh my <laughs> goodness <laughs>
2: Um, I'm on the Andrews
0: (laughs) all of Andrew Basevich, great stuff. Hope we can uh, speak with you again at some point. Thank you so much for being with us and helping to keep democracy alive. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. We'll be right back after this. Young, of course, great sentiment. We're going to switch topics rather dramatically now. When you turn on your TV of late, what advertising dominates the airtime? It used to be the case that, you know, it's just cars, appliances, and cleaning products used to own the public airwaves. For most of my life, direct-to-consumer advertising for prescription drugs was prohibited. You couldn't do it. Now those ads urging viewers to push their doctors to prescribe this or that specific non-generic medication, that dominates TV advertising. I, for one, maybe I'm old-fashioned. I think it's just wrong. And frankly, I think it's kind of immoral. On this part of keeping democracy alive, we'll we'll ask these questions. How did this happen? Why did it happen? And, and, and what's so bad about this sort of advertising? And is there any prospect for change of taking these drug pushers off the air? I'm very pleased to have with us on this part of Keeping Democracy Alive our guest, healthcare expert Dr. John Patrick. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Patrick. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, Dr. John Patrick has a doctorate in healthcare administration. He has more than 4 decades of experience in business and 10 years serving on the board of a hospital. His new book, Health Attitude, takes his visionary view and applies it to the world of healthcare, predicting its path and challenges for years to come. And Dr. Patrick is Currently, a member of the WCHN Biomedical Research Institute and Advisory Council. Again, thanks for being with us. You write that quote: "The massive amount of drug commercials that seem to be taking over the airways could be a thing of the past," and that the American Medical Association recently announced that it is calling for a ban on direct consumer uh, ads, direct to consumer ads for prescription drugs. Why, how? How did this uh, come about? How could it be a thing of the past? The the uh, you know, the American Medical Association is tends to be pretty reliably conservative. How did this uh, come to be that that's their new position?
3: Well, first of all, the the reason that it came into being in the first place is through the pharmaceutical lobby, uh, which I'm sure you know is the the largest lobby of any industry.
4: 1,500
3: lobbyists and several hundred million dollars a year spent on lobbying activities. And the result was convincing Congress that it's okay to, uh, not only okay, but necessary to have these ads because uh, consumers will will not be aware otherwise. Doctors can't keep up with all the new drugs, so we need to have this carpet bombing every day to to advertise and market the, the drugs the way it's happening. And, of course, the drugs being promoted are the very high-margin, expensive drugs. And one of the reasons that the AMA came out and said this is a, a bad thing and we should ban it, one of the reasons is that there often may be a less expensive medication that solves the problem or treatments involving no medications.
0: Hmm. That would be interesting. Now, as I recall, is my memory wrong? I don't think it is. Sometimes it is, but I don't think it is on this one. TV used to be free of ads for prescriptions. When did it change? Apparently, the, the pharmaceutical industry, which I did not know was the biggest lobby, but, but when made it change? If you could uh, shed some light on how that historic change happened.
3: Yeah, it's relatively recently. I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly which year, but it was it's five or six years ago that this happened, and the spending immediately went from zero or close to zero to $5 billion, which is about what it is right now and taxpayers are, in effect, subsidizing right. this expenditure because it's, it is a legitimate tax-deductible expense. I, I feel, uh, I think like you do, perhaps, I feel it's just wrong. You know, I think it's, uh, my word would be inappropriate to have our children who watch too much TV, uh, as it is, but to be watching adult medications ads all day long I think is is inappropriate. It also can lead to psychosomatic effects on, on people. In other words, I look at that ad and I see that actor or that actress and I say to myself, gee, you know, they kind of look like me and what they're talking about sort of rings a bell. And, you know, I thought I just had a, a simple thing, but maybe I do have this disease. I'm going to tell my doctor I want that drug. Uh, and, of course, this drives up the already unaffordable cost of health care.
0: And... How are these ads tax-deductible? I mean, when when something is tax-deductible, everybody else picks up the tab, you know, to to, to cover what money that this particular industry is not putting into the general fund. How, how what grounds is it tax-deductible?
3: Well, there's nothing special about that, really. The, the lobbyists uh, weren't involved in that aspect of it. I mean, it's a business expense. So uh, pharmaceutical companies can deduct the cost of salaries of their people and, uh, their administrative expense and of course their marketing expense, whether it's print or TV or on the web or whatever, they're, they're all legitimate uh, deductions that, that any company enjoys. Uh, but I think healthcare to me it's different. Uh, this is not about advertising cars or food or TV sets or electronics. This this is a, uh, goes to the core of of our being. In, a, in an area that is out of control. Uh, cost for health care on a per-person basis, actually, is be, that cost curve is beginning to bend due to a number of things in, in the Reform Act. But the, co- the cost of drugs uh, is out of control and growing in double digits. Uh, 13% was the last I saw. Uh, it's only 15% of the total health care cost but 15% of 4 trillion dollars is 600 billion dollars. So it's it's a big area and I I think the advertising is is inappropriate and not necessary and doesn't add anything to the health of Americans.
0: That's 600 billion dollars. What is that again? Is that is that that's not what Americans are paying per year for prescription drugs, is it? Yeah. 600
3: It is. <laughs> I mean the the, the Wow. You know, as far as who pays it, you wow. know, it's paid by Medicare, Blue Cross, Aetna, Cigna, and a lot of it is paid by by consumers. Sure. and in the, the the current environment of high cost healthcare. Deductibles have grown dramatically. It used to be five percent of people had a big deductible and they chose to have a big deductible because they felt they really wouldn't need it and they'd mm-hmm. rather enjoy the lower premiums. Right. But today it's forty percent of people have these big deductibles and it's not necessarily because they want them, it's because they, it's the only way they can get a policy they can afford. Yeah. And so this the out of pocket cost uh it goes toward pharmaceuticals and some people go bankrupt. Because of the drugs they're taking. Yeah,
0: hmm. uh, if you just tuned into uh, keeping democracy alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest is healthcare expert Dr. John Patrick. We're talking about uh, direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs, and you know, in among conservatives and not conservatives, people are concerned about the drug culture. You know, that I mean, I don't really understand this fascination that people have with heroin these days. I, but I, I just, you know, as you say, kids watch this stuff. And it seems to me the message kids are getting is drugs make your life better, drugs are going to fix your problems. I mean, where where are the conservative Republicans on this? You know, the the, the people who care about about, uh, you know, social conservatism and keeping kids away from things like that. You know, it's just what kind of a message does this give to kids? It just I mean, I have I have two uh, teenage kids and I think they're uh, beyond that thing. But an awful lot of young kids do this. And, and isn't it kind of a, you know, uh, total opposite of the message that we allegedly want to give the kids?
3: I think so. I I really feel it's it's quite in, inappropriate and uh you mentioned the word immoral earlier and you know I could agree with that too. You know the, these uh you know erectile dysfunction yes. you know is a a medical issue uh but hardly a life-threatening one and you know the ads that we see every day for this that our kids are are seeing uh, sends completely the, the wrong message. You know, it, you know, when the time is right, uh, we hear that every day, all day long in these uh, Cialis ads, and uh, all right. I, I think it's wrong. And the, the, the question before us right now is, will the AMA, uh, the position they've taken, which was a strong position, and they put a lot of logic behind it, and they said this should be banned uh i'm not so sure it's going to happen uh frankly that the lobby is so strong yeah you know we we know the nra has a strong lobby i i would guess the pharmaceutical industry lobby is even stronger and you you asked uh, the the good question you know where are the republicans on this uh you know what i've learned about healthcare since i started studying it uh, four or five years ago is that uh it's not republicans it's not democrats it's politicians uh, both parties are equally guilty. Yeah, uh, they put a provision in the prescription D drug plan that was passed under the Bush administration in 2003. They included a provision. This was a, on a bipartisan basis to ban Medicare from negotiating the price of drugs. So here we are with Medicare, the biggest customer of drugs, sure. has their hands tied. They can't negotiate. Uh, drug companies can set whatever prices they want, and Medicare uh, pays it. Medicaid does have the ability to negotiate prices, and if Medicare got the prices that Medicaid got, it would save three hundred billion dollars a year.
0: Uh, uh, you can't hear my jaw drop, but it
3: did. <laughs> that... Yeah, it, it, it's mind boggling. It, it's we should be outraged uh, by this. Uh, you remember when the when the, the Bush tax cut issue was before the Congress, and they passed the bill to resolve that i believe it would this new year's will be is it either two years or three years when that was passed and in that bill was inserted a provision by max baucus and orrin hatch a republican and a democrat Mm -hmm. in that bill was inserted a a provision that gave one company amgen a four hundred million dollar benefit to exclude them from regulation of kidney dialysis drugs that Medicare was about to implement. Why? I mean, that's what Congress is doing for us. They are not looking out for us. They're looking out for the pharmaceutical industry.
0: That is just, it's amazing how blatant it is. Right. <laughs> these these ads on, on TV, I mean, and, and you're right. You know, I hadn't really thought about the ads for Cialis and the, you know, when the moment is right. I've, I have two teenage daughters. I'm trying to tell them. You know, cool it. Be reasonable. You know, wait till your heart is there before you throw your body at something, you know. And here's the opposite message coming across. And exactly. I'm subsidizing it. Ah, oh, it's, it's amazing to me. So how much money are the drug companies spending on these TV ads? Any clue? Yeah, it's about $5 billion Five, per year. $5 billion a year.
3: Yeah, it used to be zero. You know, the other interesting thing about this bird is if you look at the healthcare around the world, uh, as I'm sure you know, we, we spend twice as much, between 50 and 50% and fifty and 100% more than, per person than other developed countries. And it's not because we get twice as good a health care. Right. I mean, Germany, Norway, South Korea, France, Switzerland, they have great health care, hmm. excellent outcomes. Their life expectancy is much better really? than American life expectancy. Oh. None of those countries allow advertising of, of drugs directly to consumers. The only other country that does is New Zealand. Uh, I just put them aside and I don't know why, they're, why they allow it, but all the other Western Europe and Canada uh, countries, uh, again with great health care, they, they don't even consider it uh, to be allowed.
0: And what, is it simply because they don't have the same uh, pharmaceutical lobby there? I guess that would be the answer. Uh,
3: well, yeah, they, they, they don't. and. That They just take a stronger position on on certain issues, and they say we're not going to allow that by the way, they benefit uh, from the situation we have that the drugs in Europe are thirty to sixty percent cheaper than in America for exactly the same drugs. I'm not talking about counterfeit drugs mm-hmm. or generic versus brand name I mean for exactly the same drugs they pay. Uh, uh, much less than we do. And the reason is because uh, we're the suckers, you know. We tied Medicare's hands and said they can't negotiate. So Americans are, in effect, subsidizing wealthy European countries.
0: (laughs) It's so complex. It's amazing how... Yeah. But, but, you know, who's benefiting is not complex, and who's paying for it, again, is not particularly uh, complex. Do, Do these ads lead to, I can imagine they do, unnecessary prescriptions with non-medical people, people who would have no idea what they're doing, demanding this or that drug. What, what, does that not lead to uh, unnecessary prescriptions and increasing the demand, of course, increases the prices, I assume?
3: Uh, there's no question about it. I mean, and that was the primary reason the AMA came out with their proclamation to say that these ads should be banned. They, they cause artificial demand. Uh, they feature, of course, the most expensive solution to oh, a health care problem. Of course. And this carpet bombing that, that we're enduring r- right now, it, you know, it's inappropriate in so many ways. I mean, I don't know how many people in the world or in America have toenail fungus, but right. we're, <laughs> we're watching that ad whether we have it or not. Now, some people say, well, yeah, but they, they can advertise on the Internet. That's true, and I'm fine with that because yeah, that's I different. what I look at what I choose to look at right. on the internet. Yes, uh, on TV, if I'm watching the, the stock market, you know, I can cannot avoid seeing these ads. I can turn the mute button on, which I do, uh, but they're there, and our kids are seeing them. And I don't know what our kids think about it. Um,
4: yeah.
3: I, I think it's just it's just wrong. It does. speak seem- about this in, in my book, Health Attitude, back uh, quite some time ago. March, and I took a a strong position on this. I'm not generally in favor of government regulations of of things. I I think in some instances we have too much government, but uh, this is an area I think is is different and really demands uh, action, and we should all be talking to our congressmen about it.
0: Well, and it's true, I believe the founders of this country talked about the common good. We have to have the common good. There's a reason we have a government, and one of my Favorite presidents. He had his faults. But Franklin Roosevelt, you know, talked about, uh, we have to make sure that greed and, you know, strictly, you know, unbridled free market cannot hurt the common good. And I think one could say that it has hurt the common good. And every now and then, we got to have some checks on it. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, it seemed that uh, on, on Saturday morning TV, there wouldn't be, you know, advertising to kids quite so directly because it seemed that without government regulation, you know, the parents, the, the people of these toy companies and cereal companies had some sense of decency. They were parents as well. But now, pff, it just seems completely out of control. We we know they spend a great deal of money uh, selling these drugs and pushing these drugs, like Toenail fungus and things like that. What about research and development dollars? I mean, I, 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 research and development is a fabulous thing. I mean, it saves a lot of lives. Does this? How does this spending on TV ads compare to to R and D dollars?
3: Well, it's actually uh, it, it exceeds R and D dollars. Not just the TV ads, but the total cost of marketing of drugs, oh, sure. which would include TV advertising, radio advertising, web advertising. Marketing programs, samples, yeah. uh, programs that they have out in in the field with with their reps. The total amount that they spend for uh, marketing uh, exceeds what they spend on research.
0: Uh, I find that disturbing,
3: and uh, I, I I think that's that's not good uh, no. for sure. I, you know, I don't think uh, companies should be regulated to the extent of well, here's how much you should spend on this and how much you should spend on that. But I think we need more competition.
0: Hmm, that's an interesting idea, and and generic drugs are kind of a competition. So, ideal. I wonder. I mean, I can't help but think that the pharmaceuticals will fight tooth and nail to keep these ads on TV, and to oh
3: yeah, they will. I wish I could be more optimistic <laughs> that Congress would step up to the plate on this, but I don't think they will. It's just like what we've seen with the NRA.
0: Yeah. Yeah, even though the people with regard to gun safety, I mean, that's a health issue, it seems to me, my goodness, it's causing tremendous deaths. And most of the people are in favor of, you know, having more gun safety, but yet the power of the NRA and the the power of the, the pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it So, you know, they're investing a lot of money in consumer advertising. What about what they spend? You talked about samples promoting prescription drugs to physicians. I don't go to physicians that often, but it seems whenever I do, there's pretty much always a, uh, a drug company representative in there with uh, baskets full of goodies for the uh, physicians.
3: Yeah, it's true. Uh, I, I think on that, it, it's it's not so bad. I mean, it used to be bad where they would uh, treat physicians lavishly and and really spend a lot of money on them but now uh, it is required that 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 be reported it's it's now public information so there's a website where you can find out what every doctor got from pharmaceutical companies which might be a a, a fee for giving a speech or teaching a class or providing surveys or input or you know i think that's okay uh, as long as it, it it's revealed which which it now is and doctors do find it useful uh, to talk to these drug reps about medications and what
4: yeah, studies they have are. been
3: done and the efficacy of the drugs and, and so on. So I don't think that's such, uh-huh. a, such a big problem. But the TV advertising, yeah, uh, we do not that doesn't add to American health.
0: And I wanted to ask, I notice on those TV ads, the things that always just freak me out when it talks about the possible side effects, which they tend to say quickly, is there... I mean, you talk about government regulation. Is there a requirement that they, you know, announce the possible adverse side effects? And and if so, that's some government regulation. I'd have a hard time believing they just do that out of the uh, kindness of their hearts.
3: No, for sure. No, it's a requirement by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and it's in a way it's uh, it's become almost almost meaningless. Uh, in my opinion. And and the reason is because the uh, the lawyers make sure that they include every possible side effect. So if one person took this drug and had a heart attack and died, then there's a risk of death from this drug. And if you read the, the, the fine print on almost any drug, you'll find that the symptoms, or not the symptoms, but the possible side right. effects are all the same.
0: Yeah, they are. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is a healthcare expert, Dr. John Patrick, whose new book is Health Attitude. And uh, we're talking about uh, direct-to-consumer drug pushing on TV. So what is, I mean, I've always thought that the American Medical Association is pretty powerful I- in Congress and at the state level as well. What are they calling for now in terms of dealing with these uh, direct-to-consumer prescription TV ads?
3: Well, their recommendation is very straightforward. They say, "Ban it, we do not need it. These medications uh, being advertised are are very costly alternatives to uh, a treatment, which in many cases could be handled by a, a less expensive medication or perhaps no medication. And AMA has had a lot of debate about this, and I'm sure they got a lot of input from I'll the pharmaceutical bet. industry. But they concluded uh, that there's there's no net benefit from TV advertising, and in fact, there is harm uh, being done. So they took a strong position. Hmm. Uh, your point about the strength of the AMA, unfortunately, uh, it's not that strong. Uh, it only represents a, a fraction, I think it's around 10% of, of doctors. And although their voice is strong, uh, their lobbying capability and their, their ability to influence Congress uh, is not nearly as strong as the pharmaceutical lobby.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I'll bet. They, their, their profit margin is a lot greater. What were you saying their profit margin was on this thing? Something like 17% a year? I mean, that's a lot better than most everything else is doing these days.
3: Yeah, no, they, you know, uh, in my book, I, I wrote about this, and I tried to be balanced, and in, uh, in fact, the whole book is, uh, I would say, hopefully, uh, I tried to make it politically neutral. Uh-huh. Uh, with regard to the drug companies, you know, we, our life expectancy is not as good as other countries, hmm. uh, but it's a lot better than it used to be. And the reason it's so much better is because of breakthrough drugs. Absolutely, and a lot of people today, uh, myself included, are have no limitations and can exercise all all they want, even though they have at, uh, arthritis, because there are some really miracle drugs that uh, don't completely cure it, but but enable us to
4: sure.
3: do the things we want to do. So, so the investment that the pharmaceutical companies make in these drugs is enormous. Yes. The cost to bring a drug to market is enormous. Oh, it's huge. And many of the drugs don't make it to market and they have to write off billions of dollars. Yeah. So they need to be profitable. Yes. And I argued in my book that they need actually to be above average profitable. But right now they're off the charts. <laughs> they're, they're doing incredibly well. And they have a free hand at setting their prices. So I think it's time Uh, that some action be taken. And step one is really easy, and the ads on TV.
0: And I will tell you, uh, some of my uh, friends to the left uh, don't agree with me on pharmaceutical companies, but they saved my life, quite frankly, and, you know, I, I, I'm very, very pleased with that. It's a good thing that they do research and development, and, it, you know, there is that profit motive there. It's not a bad thing. What, right. what can people do? I like to, you know, in this show, try to enable people with, uh, you know, things that they can do. Is there a number on a specific bill, or how can people find out more about this and what we can do on this?
3: Well, right now there is no bill that I'm aware of uh, to to deal with this. This recommendation by the AMA just came out, I think it was on, uh, I believe it was on Friday. And so the next step is, you know, will politicians listen to this and will someone bring forward a bill uh, to ban the advertising, uh, the TV advertising of these drugs? Uh, I hope so. Uh, we should talk to our, our congressmen and tell them, we, you know, we've had it with these ads. You know, they've, they've reached the point where it's, it's not one a day. You know, it's 12 to 15 a day. Oh, yeah. And we don't want our kids watching them. And most of the things that are advertised are for diseases most of us never heard of. So come on, dear congressman, uh, you know, do something about this. Get rid of it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I can't help but think that the market, say, for example, the one you brought up, toenail fungus, that's got to be pretty small, and yet they're spending a lot of money on this. I it seems odd to me the the you know the money they're putting in compared to the money they get out. I, I don't understand it completely.
3: Well, they're very the, the the drugs that you that you see advertised. They're they're expensive drugs. These are not, uh, uh, I see you know prednisone <laughs> uh, for example. You know very inexpensive. Uh, drugs. A lot of drugs are inexpensive, uh, but the ones being advertised, of course, are the ones that are very expensive. Sure. Hundreds of dollars per month. Some of them are thousands of dollars. And right. that's what they advertise. My response to uh, to to critics of, ba- of the ban is that consumers know how to use the internet. Uh, Ten yes. years ago, you could argue they didn't.
4: Right. You could even
3: argue that a lot of people don't have access to the internet. Uh that's not true today. No. Uh at any level in the socioeconomic status of, of America, people have yeah. access to the internet many in many cases via an inexpensive cell phone and they can find things. And people can can type in a, a symptom and yeah. they can find a diagnosis. And uh, we're not talking about from drug companies. We're talking about from Mayo Clinic and from the Cleveland Clinic, and from WebMD. Oh, absolutely. And there's many very good sites to get the
0: information. That's a good point, and maybe people can go even to the AMA site and find out more about this and what they can do. Thank you so much. Very informative, and uh, it's nice to have good news every now and then. (laughs) Dr. John Patrick, uh, is there a website you can point people to uh, for your interest?
3: Yes, thank you. It's called Health Attitude. One word healthattitude.org. And you'll find a a little bit about me and more about uh, my book, which is called Health Attitude.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us and uh, keeping democracy alive. Thank you.
3: Okay, it was a pleasure.